Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of outdoor adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration, and a few tunes to set the mood. You can read more about the show online at traillesstravel.net. And now here's your host, Grand Canyon Whitewater Guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. Tonight, we are on the trail with former professional road bicycle racer, Tyler Hamilton. Tyler is the author of the book, The Secret Race. Tyler, thank you so much for coming into the studio on the trail less traveled. Thanks so much for having me on the show. I'm a big fan. I listen at home, but listen to quite a bit a few shows uh, when I'm driving in the car, and I love it. You know, the time just passes by. It's, uh, I love the interviews that you do and the stories that I hear. The one uh, guy that really inspired me was this guy, Lee, I think Liam, Whitewater Adventurer. Yeah, that really inspired me. Yeah, I'm psyched to be on your show. What a nice opportunity. Tyler, my first question for you is where did you grow up and how was outdoor adventure a part of your childhood? I grew up in Marblehead, Massachusetts, just north of Boston on the coast, about 20 miles north of the city. And outdoor adventure was kind of my whole life, my whole childhood. My parents said our religion was learned in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. So we did a lot of traveling up there on the weekends, especially in the winter season. We were big skiers. Older brother, older sister, and throwing the kids in the back of the long station wagon with the wood panel sides and a golden retriever, too, and just heading up to the mountains. They brought us up skiing at a place right across the way, right across from Mount Washington, a, a ski area called Wildcat. Wildcat was a tough mountain. Got a ton of wind, you know, that blew over from Mount Washington and super cold. Learned me to be tough. Learned me to be really tough. It taught me to deal with pain. I was cold a lot as a kid on that mountain because mm. you'd freeze. The lifts back there weren't that fast and you get the wind right off of Mount Washington and you had to learn to suffer a little bit. And that helped me, I think, later in life on the bicycle because cycling was all about suffering. Tons of time out in the woods, tons of time on the slopes. And I grew up near the water, so I was able to do some sailing and learn about the ocean. and feel very fortunate for my upbringing. You said you ran around in the forest. Tell us about the forest in the East Coast because we're you know, in Missoula, so yeah. it's quite different. Yeah. Forests were a little bit thicker there, and just it seemed like it was a little bit easier to get lost. Me and my friends would just go out all day long and come back when it got dark. So parenting was a lot different back then than they just let us go and roam, come back at dinner time. Yeah, lots of adventures. We started a little group with my friends called Crazy Kids of America, climbing trees, doing elevator trees where you could climb to the top and grab the top branch and let it bend over. Sometimes they'd snap and you come <laughs> crashing down. Your religion growing up was in the White Mountains <laughs> yeah. of New Hampshire. Tell us more about that. Take us there. Yeah. Every weekend in the fall, winter, and spring, we'd head north kind of out of the rat race and into the White Mountains of New Hampshire. Spent a lot of time hiking. During the winter months, I got serious about ski racing. So that was my big sport as a kid. I did everything my brother did. So he started ski racing, then I started ski racing. The older I got, the summer, fall was about training for skiing. So you know that included a lot of running, a little bit of cycling back then, hiking, a lot of cardiovascular activities. How are the White Mountains of New Hampshire different than the mountains in Montana? I'd say a little bit thicker, easier to get lost. The mountains aren't as massive. There are a lot of just jagged mountains, and you can get a lot of little valleys and 
if you're not really paying attention, yeah, you can get lost. And, you know, a fun situation can turn into something pretty serious pretty quickly. I think because of that, I learned just to be able to read the land pretty well because I knew I had to get back. That, I think, helped me later in life. You know, later when I got into cycling, it would be, you know, you're in this foreign country and you're out on a training ride and you're trying to get back to your hotel. You can't read the language. You can't read the signs. and You have to just get a lay of the land and, you know, remember it as you're going out so you can get back. I'd like to talk to you about wind. You had wind on the mountain and you had wind on the coast. So from the mountain, let's talk about the coast and sailing as a child. Oh, man, besides learning to ride my bike as a kid, you know, learning to sail a boat was one of the most freeing things ever. Maybe 10 years old when I sailed my first boat all by myself. Just that freedom to go from point A to point B all by yourself with no motor. You were the only one in the boat? Yeah. used to sail these little things called widgeons, two-person boats, but you could sail them by yourself as well. To go sail across and go out to an island all by yourself, that was Mm -hmm. pretty cool. Actually, my big brother did it, so obviously I had to follow in his footsteps. What's your big brother's name? His name's Jeff with a G. Everything Jeff did, I did. So, yeah, without him, I wouldn't be where I am today. Nor my sister. Felt lucky to be the youngest of behind those two. Learning to work with the wind instead of against it. A beautiful, very freeing activity, and I love the physics behind it. I feel very fortunate that I got that opportunity. So let's talk about early cycling. Take us to the first time that you were able to ride your bike without training wheels. My dad asked me if I wanted to take them off, the training wheels, and I was ready. I was psyched that he gave me that opportunity. And when I got up for the first time and started riding and realized that I wasn't going to fall and that I was in full control, it was super, super freeing and liberating. And I didn't want to turn around. I didn't want to go home. I was just like, I want to do this forever. Yeah, that was a huge, huge experience for me. Up to that point, I uh, just watched my brother and my sister bike, and my sister one time doubled me, and I put my foot into the back wheel. So my whole foot got shredded by the spokes. I learned that I wanted to ride my bike by myself to see everything from a different angle. Having the wind blow through your hair was just to die for. I've been fortunate enough to help a few kids ride their bikes for the first time. It's a cool experience to see them with all their fears at the beginning and then when they finally do it, just to see their eyes. It's awesome. It's awesome. What would you tell parents out there who are trying to help their child ride without training wheels? How do you coach children? You know, they know what to do. The kids know what to do. They just need a teeny bit of coaching, just a lot of support and love, really. That's Mm -hmm. it. They'll get it. Not being too, I guess, overbearing. The one thing I do notice from, you know, when I grew up, which was a long time ago and you know, today is there's a lot more just in-your-face parenting, it seems like. Kids like a little bit of freedom, and I think that's important, obviously within reason. And it's okay to fall. It's okay. I mean, failing. I failed my whole whole life. It's okay to fail, and it's okay to crash. You know, that's why you start in a grassy field. Let them fall over. It's okay. You know, but they get back up, and they brush themselves off, and they go again. Everybody operates at a different pace, has a different whatever biorhythm. Some kids are... They never have training wheels. Other kids will have them for three or four years. Yeah, when they're ready, let them go for it. But also not too much pressure, you know. My parents never put any pressure on me. When it came to ski racing, like, I did well at it. But if I didn't do well, it was all the same. Mm-hmm. It was all the same. They just wanted me to be a good person at the end of the day. Shake hands with my fellow competitors. Ask about their race, how they did. Less about me, more about other people. So I felt lucky to have learned those lessons at a young age. 
Tyler, I'd like to ask you about a moment, a moment for you where you had an epiphany in your early adventures. There's a few things I could talk about. One that hit me was the life and death situation. My whole life I felt like I was Superman and I could just do anything and nothing could go wrong, I guess. And it was Mount Washington where my parents met. And I was hiking down uh, through Tuckerman's Ravine in the dead of the winter all by myself. I probably had no business being up there. Like I didn't have the right probably equipment or all that stuff. But I was young and wide-eyed and just went for it. And I was hiking down through Tuckerman's Ravine, and I felt a few, like, cracks on the edge of an avalanche. And I knew right away I had to get out of there. And I did. I hiked up. I had to basically hike way up and around, which took me a lot longer than I expected. I got back down to the trailhead at dark, but I felt like that was a near, near miss. And people die all the time there from freak accidents like that. I could have just been one of the statistics. I felt like I was a step away from dying. And it totally opened my eyes. When I got home that night, I definitely counted my blessings. How were you able to not panic in that situation? Panicking is the worst thing you can do. I just tried to breathe and slowly step my way backwards out of where I was coming from. But I just felt very lucky. And I knew I probably had no business hiking down that way. Like, there's probably times of the year where that's fine. But this is, you know, I had tons of snow and it Mm -hmm. wasn't really settled yet. And, you know, I felt like, Nothing could slow me down. I was young and just nothing could hurt me and nothing could slow me down. You're way above tree line at that point. You're at this big, massive mountain. It was just very humbling. And wow, I'm not Superman. And I could easily just be gone. And you remembered that from that day on? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'll never forget that moment, just that crack that I heard. I knew I was close. People die there every winter and they don't find them till the spring or even summertime. Because there's so much snow. And in the Tuckerman's Ravine, it's like a bowl. So all the snow gets blown into this thing. Sometimes others don't get found for half of a year. I would have been a statistic for sure. They wouldn't have found me for probably a long time. That was one eye-opening moment that I had, sort of epiphany. You know, you got to be careful. We are in the studio with Tyler Hamilton. We've been talking about his early childhood, and I'd like to play a song. So, Tyler, what song reminds you of your early childhood adventures? Learning to Fly by Tom Petty. I like that song. It kind of reminded me of just when I was a kid, wide-eyed and letting the wind blow through my hair and just kind of flying around, whether it was on skis or on a sailboat, whatever it was, just letting that wind blow through my hair and enjoying it, kind of flying along. And now back to the trail less traveled with Mandela. Tonight, we are on the trail with former professional road bicycle racer, Tyler Hamilton. Tyler is the author of the book, The Secret Race. Earlier, we spoke about Tyler's early childhood growing up north of Boston, an early cultivation for the love of speed skiing and sailing. But now I'd like to talk to you about getting into cycling. What maybe a lot of people know about you, Tyler, is that you were actually more into ski racing before cycling. And you were doing cross-training for alpine ski racing on a bike. But that's, in a roundabout way, how you got into biking. Yeah, yeah. Tell us about that. I think I was 18 years old, 19 years old. I was training. At this point, I was at the University of Colorado in Boulder. 
I was on the ski team there. It was my sophomore year. And we were dry land training, basically cross training in the fall. I think it was October. So before we had any snow on the trails. And we were doing some mountain biking. We were always racing each other. And we were going way too fast. I went over this berm and went flying headfirst into the ground and broke two vertebrae in my upper back. That took me off skis for the winter. I was in bed three or four months just looking at the ceiling. And when I got out of bed, the doctor said I could ride a road bike. So, and I had done a little bit of road biking before just as a cross-training activity for ski racing. I wasn't able to ski that winter, so I just kind of took out my frustration on the roads outside of Boulder, Colorado. And little did I know, Boulder, Colorado was like a huge cycling mecca. All sorts of pros living there, top amateurs. So little did I know, I'm like bumping into these people, starting to ride with them. And as time went on, they weren't able to drop me or... So I learned pretty quick that I was probably a better cyclist, or at least had the tools to be a better cyclist, than I did as a ski racer. My uh, learning curve was really steep. I joined the University of Colorado cycling team and was able to win the national championship. And kind of the rest is history. Then went on to the U.S. national team, did that for a year, traveling all over the world. Then I turned professional the year after, so it happened so quick. You know, one minute I'm a ski racer in college, the next minute I'm a pro, and a couple years later I'm on the start line of the Tour de France. Just kind of insanity. But it was wild and happened so quick. As, you know, even today, like I look back and still have a hard time absorbing it all. Everything was happening fast, and it was quite a ride. It was quite a ride. Now, Tyler, what makes road biking road biking? How is it different than other types of cycling? Riding on the road, riding on the road, not on, you know, not on trails, not on really dirt roads, although we did ride on dirt roads. It's a lot more, I'd say, controlled than mountain biking. There's a lot more variables in mountain biking. On the road, you do have to worry about traffic, and depending on where you live, you know, that can be a bigger challenge than other places. For me, learning to road bike happened in Boulder, Colorado, right at the foothills of the Rocky Mountains. So you had the plains to the east. And then you had the Rocky Mountains right to your west, right out your door. So spent a lot of time climbing in the foothills outside of Boulder up to the roads like the Peak-to-Peak Highway, which is probably one of the most beautiful roads in the world, Mm -hmm. even to this day, yeah. I love road biking because you get to explore. You get to see a lot. You might go out and ride 80 miles or 100 miles, you know, in the day, and you get to see a lot over those four or five, six hours of riding. And, you know, when you're in a car, you can't really see it or feel it like the way you do on a bike. When you're on a bike, you know, you're riding maybe 20 miles an hour on average, and you get to see it, you get to smell it, everything, and it's pretty awesome having that wind blow through your hair. And and all times of the year, I love riding in the winter. It's the best. You know, when the road is clear, having snow on the side of the road, everything sounds a little bit different, and you're usually out there with not a whole lot of other cyclists and kind of you against the world kind of thing, and it's fun. It's kind of meditative. Spent a lot of time just by myself, riding by myself, or... Maybe listening to a little bit of music once in a while, but you solve a lot of your own problems out on the bike. You always came back home feeling a lot better than when you left. There's nothing like that. I need to get out more often now. You forget that feeling that you have when you return from an adventure, and there's nothing like it. Let's talk about the difference between road biking versus racing. Oh, racing usually is quite a bit faster, you know, unfortunately. And the fastest race I ever did, I think, was 200 kilometers, which is well over 100 miles. And we did it averaging, I don't know, 33, 34 miles an hour. That was pretty crazy. 
But racing is a whole different aspect. Just riding is wonderful, meditative, relaxing. Racing is a lot more cutthroat. You know, you're racing knuckle to knuckle with guys. You're sometimes packed in on the road like sardines. One wrong move by you or by one of your competitors can just take you down the domino effect. So one minute you can be on top of the world, feeling great, thinking you have a good chance at doing well in that day's race, and then the next minute you could be surfing on the asphalt, listening to your bike, all the metal screech along the road, feeling the skin burn off your arms and legs. Mm -hmm. Yet it's also fantastic. As they say in Europe, the finale of a race, the end of a race, you know, the, the last can be up to an hour. For me, the finale is more like the last 20 minutes of a race. It's just, there's nothing like it. You're out of body. Everything's just happening instinctively. And most of the time it doesn't work out, but once in a while it does work out and you're able to win. And there's nothing like it. I think that a lot of people, when they hear about the Tour de France and the different races around the world, how beautiful it must be to ride in those areas. But how much time were you spending looking at where you were riding and how beautiful it was versus this meditation of being on the bike and what's yeah. in front of you? During a race like the Tour de France, I raced it eight times. I get to experience little parts of France, but you didn't really get to look around a whole lot. You know, even if the race is six and a half or seven hours long, like, when you're not focused, you're going to lose. So you had to stay super focused, super disciplined. Yeah, there wasn't a whole lot of sightseeing. The top tier of cycling's in Europe, so I had to basically set up a base over there and live there for most of my career. Maybe not the whole year, but you know, nine or ten months out of the year. And so I did get to train a lot there and get to experience different places and just see it, feel it, breathe it. And having the opportunity to experience other cultures, that was pretty fantastic. Very fortunate. But yeah, when you're racing, you don't have a whole lot of time to look around. Let's talk about that moving meditation while you're on your bicycle. When a lot of people think of moving meditation, maybe they think of yoga asanas, but Mm. there's also a moving meditation when you are on a bicycle in a race or you're in a whitewater kayak and you're about to drop into a class five rapid. There's a meditation that happens. You know, you have it when you're training, especially when you're riding by yourself, you're able to just listen to your breath and you don't have to look at a heart rate monitor or a power meter which they have on bikes these days you know exactly where you are due to your breath you just listen to your breath and there's kind of nothing like it you also get that way in races too when you're just in the whatever some people call it the pain cave or in that hurt locker whatever you want to call it when you're just really suffering but all of a sudden it goes beyond the pain becomes so bad that you almost get through the other side of it and you're okay with it it's hard to explain, but it's pretty magical when it happens. Oh, the pain's in your legs. The pain is in your lungs. Sometimes pain in my fingertips, my earlobes, just because my whole body was just flushing lactic acid throughout it. When you're experiencing lactic acid in your fingertips, that means writing is on the wall. Your time's going to be over quickly. But if it's at the end of the race and you've timed it perfectly, sometimes things work out and you're able to win. But there were plenty of times when, you know, I was at the back of the group and, you know, I was feeling lactic acid in my eyebrows or my fingers and many more times that things did not work out. But I always said that for every 99 bad days you had, you had one good day. I think that was pretty fair to say about cycling, at least for me. You are listening to The Trail Less Traveled. Tonight, we are on the trail with former professional road bicycle racer, Tyler Hamilton. 
the author of the book, The Secret Race. The timing was right, and you were experiencing it towards the end of the race. You said like the last 20 minutes of the race is yeah. euphoric feeling. What happens when you finish? What do you do? Are you on the ground? Yeah, some people collapse when they cross the line. I just would usually pull over as quickly as possible and lean up against some sort of fence or you know one of the barriers that they have there and just look down at the ground and catch my breath. It depends. You know, if you won, you had reporters, you had people right in your face immediately trying to interview you. So that was a whole different ballgame. I mean, when you were able to win, it was a pretty amazing feeling. Pretty amazing feeling. There were so many hard days. You know, a lot of people don't see the time you spend out training or the time you spend trying to lose the extra five pounds of weight. Your strength to weight ratio was very critical. So I spent a lot of time thinking about food, not necessarily eating it. You had to be very, very dedicated to succeed in every avenue in your life. I used to say you had to live like a monk. You ate, you trained, you rested. The saying in Europe was, when you're standing, sit, and when you're sitting, lie down. So it was like constant rest because your body needed it. I put every ounce of energy into that bike. Regardless how I did in the Tour de France, every time I reached Paris, which is where they finish every year, I would be completely just destroyed. That would take me weeks to fully recover. And in those weeks of full recovery, were you riding at all? Active recovery definitely helps. So mm-hmm. We raced up to 100 days a year, so Tour de France is only 20 or 21 days of racing. So plenty more of races after the Tour de France that we did. Yeah, it was a long season. Some guys started racing in January and don't finish till end of October. A lot of people don't realize that yeah, there is cycling after the Tour de France, and a lot of it. We were just talking about food and thinking about food. What did you eat during training? This is at the professional level, so I was definitely very aware of like calories and all that because I had to be. I used to be about 30 pounds lighter, just skin and bones. When you were training, you know, not overeating, it's easy to eat a lot. As a cyclist, I was always, always hungry. But I focused on good food, solid carbohydrate, lean meats, lots of big screen salads and fruit in the morning. Once you got to the race days, you didn't skimp on the calories, and you ate what your body needed. You ate a lot. In a typical stage in the Tour de France, you can burn up to 8,000 calories a day. Mm-hmm. You know, So that's a lot of food going through your system. But when are you eating? Yeah, well, you have to learn to eat on the bike. You, know? you carry food with you, and you get food passed up to you during the race. If you don't learn to eat and drink on the bike, you're going to basically, what they call bonk, run out of energy. And I did that many, many times. When you're racing, tons of pasta. During the Tour de France, sometimes they'd feed us pasta even for breakfast because you just needed carbohydrate. Breakfast sometimes would be rice and eggs, which are really good. I miss that. So much pasta that, like, I don't eat a lot of pasta these days, to be honest with you. <laughs> so much. But, like, every night was pasta. It was like, okay, fish with pasta, chicken with pasta, or beef with pasta. That was the um, cyclist meal. So, yeah, I'm a little bit pasta out. <laughs> That's all right. There are so many other good foods to eat, really. I'd love to eat. So, In a race like the Tour de France, you have so much climbing. You're climbing in the, the French Alps and the French Pyrenees, which are just, I mean, it'd be like climbing to the snow bowl like 10, 15 times a day. And if you're carrying a few extra pounds, you know, maybe on day one, it's no big deal. But eventually, by day three, you know, it's three weeks long, this race. So, you know, just a glass of water, that extra weight over three weeks' time could really add up. So I kind of compared ourselves at the Tour de France level a little bit to, like, marathon runners. Not a whole lot of extra baggage. 
It was hard to get – so hard to get to that weight. You couldn't hold that weight all season long. So you'd start the race season heavier. You'd wean yourself up. The ultimate was the Tour de France. It's the biggest race in the world. We call it like the Super Bowl of cycling. So you did everything to prepare for that race to get your ideal weight. And then sometimes it worked out. Sometimes it didn't. You know, those few times that it did work out, it made it all worthwhile. It's hard. I mean, dieting all the time was tough. It wasn't just suffering on the bike. You were suffering off the bike a lot too. I mean, in my opinion, it's the hardest sport in the world. Did you have a favorite food that you ate before a race? You know, they didn't like us to mix it up too much. We ate, you know, as a team always, so the meals were prepared as a team. They like kind of standard meals. What I like to eat after a race, my favorite food was chocolate cake. So, like, after the Tour de France, big piece of chocolate cake and maybe a, a cold beer was what I craved. I didn't really see any of that during the season. What a wonderful place to be in Paris when you want a slice of chocolate cake. Yeah, totally, totally. <laughs> when when sea kayaking and we're doing a long haul from one island to the next, you really make good friends with your kayaking partners because sometimes you need to make a bowel movement and yeah. in the water. You had to get out of your kayak and do it in the water and your friends are right there holding your kayak. So you're eating a lot. You're on your bike. What if you have to go to the bathroom on your bike? Yep, yep. If you have to pee, you pee right off your bike. A lot of times if, if you're a team leader, for example – You'll have your teammates give you kind of a push as you're coasting along. Depending where you were on the totem pole in terms of ability, you either were just coasting along at the back of the peloton by yourself, you know, having three guys pushing you. While you're peeing. Yeah, and hopefully there's not a crosswind, mm -hmm. you know. Sometimes the wind, you have to be careful with the wind because you don't want it blowing back on yourself or into your teammates or on other guys. But I always did them to the right, so my left hand would be on the bar. Turn your hips. Put your left leg against the, that crossbar. Steady yourself. You know, you got to be careful because you don't want to hit pothole. If you do, you better be pretty secure. So you have to, you kind of use your legs to, like, hold the crossbar. It's pretty normal, pretty standard operating procedure. If the race is going slow enough, if it's in the early stages of a six-, seven-hour race, yeah, a lot of guys stop. And a lot of guys will stop together in big groups. So the first couple hour, hours of a race, it's not surprising to see large chunks of guys stopping at the same time because then they actually help each other get back to the peloton, drafting and all that. If the speeds are high, you can't stop because you won't catch back on. So mm -hmm. you have to go right off the bike. If you have to do something more serious than that, yeah, you better pick your time wisely because there's a good chance you're not going to make it back on. I was fortunate enough that that never happened to me racing. You are listening to The Trail Less Traveled. Tonight, we are on the trail with former professional road bicycle racer, Tyler Hamilton, the author of the book, The Secret Race. Tyler, f for someone listening who doesn't know about your career, could you just take us through your career quickly? Oh, sure. My cycling career started kind of by accident. The accident is what got me off the skis and put me on a bike, really. The learning curve was pretty steep, and I excelled at it, I think, pretty well, pretty quickly, and went from collegiate racing to racing the U.S. national team to being professional into basically three years or really less. A couple of years racing more or less domestically, maybe 70% domestically, 30% internationally. Uh, that third year as a professional, I took the big step up and went basically to the top tier. Living in Europe, racing in Europe, that was in 1997. I was uh, a couple months away from riding in my first Tour de France if I got selected because only nine guys get to do it out of teams who are up to 25. And 
that's when I got invited into a sort of secret little society, secret fraternity. And I was in the world of performance-enhancing drugs. Little did I know up to that point that it existed. Not only did it exist, it was in full swing. It started small. It started with a little red egg, as I call it, like a little testosterone pill. How it happened was the team doctor came into my room and he had told me how hard I had been working, how much I had been pushing through the pain. You know, I was sitting there in my hotel room after this five-day Spanish race. And I was lying in my hotel room like a, a snow angel. I was just completely exhausted, torn to pieces. And he came into my room and just kind of like a fatherly figure told me how hard I'd worked and how impressed he was. But it was time to, like, make myself healthier. And he presented me with this little red egg, testosterone. Big scheme of things, it was nothing compared to what happened later, but that was the start of it. I never thought I would have to cheat to be in any sport. But I quickly learned that it was a lot bigger than I knew. Pretty much at that time in 1997, I can't say everybody because I can't speak for every individual, but out of the 200 guys in the Tour de France, I'd say at least 195 were doping, at least. It was part of the culture, and the testosterone pill led to injections of a drug called EPO. EPO basically increases your hematocrit, which your hematocrit brings uh, red blood cells to your muscles. So in a sport like bike racing, it's an absolute game changer. I had people telling me what to do. Doctors, well-experienced doctors telling me what to do and managers around. People knew. Once I was invited into that fraternity, I quickly learned that, oh, wow, everybody's in the know here. But it was kept very secret. That led to something called blood doping. Doctors will extract your blood, store it in a refrigerator or freezer, and then reinfuse it back into your body when it's depleted. So in a race like the Tour de France, that might be in the second week of the Tour de France immediately your hematocrit will go up about two and a half to three points. Massive performance enhancement. That all didn't happen the first year. It was very slow. But eventually my first transfusion happened uh, in the year 2000 at the Tour de France. We did it before the Tour de France, and then we got it reinfused back in the Tour de France. That was with Lance Armstrong and another teammate. And obviously with the doping and the results, there were improvements. You know, there were slow improvements, and at one point I was the number one ranked rider in the world, which is crazy, you know. But, yeah, I was winning big races, and races that I had people tell me at one point that I'd never finish, I was winning those. It was the snowball effect, basically. You know, some guys have gone on to say, like, oh, I never thought it was cheating. You know, I always knew it was cheating. I had a lot of committee meetings. I call them committee meetings in the middle of the night where I thought about it. I was kind of caught in this world, and I always thought, okay, you know, my career is short, and a couple more years I'll be done, and then I can go on to living a normal life. You know, in between starting doping and, you know, I had a lot of success, tons of success, winning the biggest races in the world, and I won a stage of the Tour de France. I never won the Tour de France, I was, but that was on my bucket list. At one point, it wasn't very far away. Like, it was, I was close. But then I came all crashing down. I had a positive test in September of 2004. Like, other than a a close family member dying, like, it was like a death. It was like something inside me died. My world came crashing down. I served a two-year suspension. I tried to make a comeback. It didn't really work. And then I kind of quietly retired from the sport. I guess I'll go back to that first positive test in 2004. I had two options, tell the truth or do what I was expected, you know, and that was keep your mouth shut. And 
That's what I did. It's kind of a secret society, the Omerta. We had the, a code of silence. You didn't talk about it. I felt like if I was going to tell the truth, I had to tell the whole truth. And I didn't want to tell the whole truth because it was going to take many people down with me. So I chose to just lie and, and live in my own personal prison. I'm so fortunate this happened because I might still be today living with these lies. But in 2010, there was a federal investigation that went underway into they were investigating Lance Armstrong and the old team that I was on, the U.S. Postal Service cycling team. I got um, subpoenaed. I stood in front of a grand jury in Los Angeles and told the whole truth from the beginning to the end. It was the first time I'd ever done that. You know, I basically went in kicking and screaming, more or less. You know, I didn't want to be there, but I knew what I had to do, and I knew I had to tell the truth, and I did it. And it was like, that changed my life. Like, that was, that was the turning point for me. Life's certainly not perfect, but it's the simple thing of, of telling the truth. It doesn't matter how big the lie is. It's like so cathartic. It was such a – it's hard even to describe it, but it changed my life. It changed my life forever. And I made that some big mistakes in my career. and Nobody ever had a gun to my head. There was obviously a lot of pressure to do these things that I did. This has all been such a blessing. It's like when you have these big choices in your life just to – Take a few deep breaths to kind of listen to your true self, which is sometimes we all tend to lose that sometimes. You know, I'm on my way back to finding my true self again, and that's just awesome. Up till that point, I didn't know what the rest of my life was going to be like, but I wasn't very excited about it. You know, if it was improving, you know, it was a millimeter at a time. Now, like, you know, I want to live to I'm 100. Like, I can't wait to live the rest of my life. And, you know, being on a show like this, talking about adventures and, you know, it reminds me a lot of just being a kid. I listened to one of your shows a few months ago, and it, it just reminded me of being a kid, and I'm, like, very fortunate for where I am today and just to have lived all these experiences, you know, the good and the bad. Like, I've learned so much, and, you know, I've certainly failed a lot. I've come out the other side, and I'm doing the right thing now. I talk as much as I can about what I went through. I spent a lot of time talking to young kids and all different ages, and I'll continue to do that. So I feel like it's my responsibility now. It's not easy. Sometimes I feel like I'm just going to confession. But it's necessary. Obviously, cycling has been through a lot in the last few years, a lot of big names coming out with the truth, which is the truth about doping. But unfortunately, a lot of them haven't come out and really talked about it openly, and I think it's important. I think it's important for not just cycling, for all the sport, and not even just sport. There's so much pressure in society today, whether it's to get a scholarship in school, whether it's to get a promotion at a job. Maybe it's to get a job. Maybe it's to, like you bump up your resume to get that dream job. Maybe you look the other way when your boss overcharges the customer. I feel like a lot of people can learn from my lessons, my mistakes. So I do feel like it's my obligation to, to talk about it. And there's no question that can't be asked anymore, and that's pretty awesome. Before, when you're living a huge lie, like I hated being interviewed because I never wanted them to talk about the doping part. And if they did, you had to lie. You had to lie. You had to keep that the code of silence going you are listening to the trail less traveled tonight we are on the trail with former professional road bicycle racer tyler hamilton the author of the book the secret race tyler you said that you hope a lot of people learn from your mistakes what have you learned yeah oh man i could talk to you for hours about that question that's a great question that's a great question yeah i've learned a lot about myself I've learned a lot about others. You know, I've learned who my true friends are. 
you know, at first I think it was disheartening, but now it's so clear. And like your true friends and your family, they're the most important things in your life. And everybody else, like they can be great too, but like focus on those people. And if you do that and then focus on your true self, you know, you're going to do just fine. The biggest thing is the power of the truth. I was sitting there, basically a prisoner of my own decision, sitting there in my own personal hell, so to speak, not happy, not having a, any way to alleviate these feelings. But it was really simple. You know, tell the truth. I thought the truth would ruin me, but it actually saved me. It saved me. So that's the biggest thing I've learned. And if you can stay true to yourself and be truthful and open and honest with people, you're going to do just fine. I'd learned that as a kid. I obviously got away from that during my life and to be able to come back to it and learn the hard lessons myself. And what better way to learn than when you fail? I fail greatly. But I feel pretty fortunate to be where I am today. I mean, I'm a fraction of what I used to be in terms of, I'm kind of starting over again. But there's something super exhilarating about that and raw and just I'm kind of a new life ahead of me. Living here in Missoula now, I've been here about two and a half years. This place is two thumbs up. I feel very happy, very lucky. The whole thing's been a blessing. I, I wrote a book about my experiences, The Secret Race. That was hard. That was one of the hardest things I've ever done. Because it was like looking in a mirror and telling the whole truth about all my mistakes that I made. That took about two and a half years to write. Then it's taken a while since then just to kind of process everything. Because it was two and a half years of like writing I had a co-writer, Dan Coyle, that I worked with. You know, at first the information was trickling out of me, and then, it, you know, it was, by the end it was pouring out. But then since then I've been able to kind of reflect on everything. I didn't really have a whole lot of time to reflect as I was writing it, if that makes sense. And that's been kind of the best part about it. And what better place in Missoula, Montana, mm -hmm. to do that? Did those closest to you who were not like your racing teammates family did they know what you're going through did they know no the nobody knew nobody knew my ex-wife haven she knew she was the only one that knew she had to know because i mean we we did everything together other than that nobody knew you know she had to keep the secret too and it was awful for her your whole team didn't know necessarily it all happened behind closed doors you know most of your teammates you expected they were doping but unless you talked about it directly with them it wasn't like you were swallowing these pills or injecting yourself in front of them my family didn't know. A lot of people wonder about that. No, I had to lie to them. It was awful. So when I told them the truth, I was pretty, I got them all together and told them at once. Glad I don't have to do that again. Tyler, tell me about <clears throat> how your heart felt, how heavy this was before when you talked about it in L.A. to after you first said it for the first time and you spoke freely. I had a super heavy heart just going into the. I had a heavy heart for years. Like I was just sad. I don't know any other way to explain it. It was like I had a 100-pound backpack on when I went into that courtroom, and when I came out, it was gone. Amazing. Mm -hmm. I spoke for seven hours in front of the grand jury, more or less, and came out a whole different person. Very eye-opening, like, wow, that's all it took. There was plenty of consequences and plenty, you know, but every day has been a little bit better because of it. Every day. So what were those consequences? Death threats, hate mail, you know, 
not too many death threats, but I had death threats because that was before Lance had come out with his truth. A lot of people weren't happy about what I said about myself and what I said about other people, but I had to. My friends and family got a lot of flack. That's all right. I mean, I guess it was all part of it. Did you get um, medals taken away from you? Oh, yeah. I won a gold medal in Athens, Greece in 2004. I gave it back voluntarily. I mean, they were going to come looking for it eventually because I admitted the truth. You know, it felt better to give that thing back than it felt to win that thing, which is really strange. My whole life I wanted to win a gold medal. I don't care what it was in. I'd watch the 1980 uh, U.S. men's hockey team win a gold medal at Lake Placid. And I thought that would be the coolest thing ever. And then when I finally won it and I'm standing there on the podium in Athens, it, it didn't feel like it was supposed to feel. So that says something. I apologize to a lot of people, and I still do to this day apologize to people. I mean, I lost a, a lot of, I guess, friends, but who knows if they're even friends, to be honest. But I lost them way back in 2004, so I've been losing those kind of people my whole life, and my life now is a lot more simplified, and my circle of people are, is not that wide or expansive anymore. I was okay with that. Just facing the truth now, like, at the end of the day, that's it's it's true what happened. We cheated, or I cheated. Simple as that. Sometimes when you have to talk to a little kid in elementary school about it, they don't beat around the bush. They ask the questions straight. Why did you cheat? I got a question last week. Are you the guy that ratted out Lance Armstrong? Yeah. I mean, I spoke the truth, and I guess I couldn't say no. I'd finally told the truth, and the first time I'd you know, did it in front of the grand jury. Then I did it in front of 60 Minutes. I did a piece with them. Because up to that point, the, what I had said in front of the grand jury was uh, sealed. All that information was sealed. So the, kind of the first time I told the truth to whoever was listening was on 60 Minutes. But yeah, I mean, if you can't be true to yourself, you can't be true to anybody. And I, I finally needed to tell the, the truth. And if it involved other people, so be it. I had to tell it. When you say I had to, are you talking about because it, it would be illegal to lie in front of the court or it just came to the uh, point where you Well, initially to... that's how – like initially because they first uh, – when federal investigator Jeff Nowitzki came – he was the guy who investigated Barry Bonds back in the day. When he first contacted me, he, he asked to do a, what's called a proffer, which is you come in voluntarily. You, you know, it's not in front of a grand jury. You get to have a lawyer by your side. And when I heard the word voluntarily, I said, no, thanks. I was going to have to be backed up to that cliff to tell the truth. Like that's how much I thought the truth was going to do anybody any good. I got the subpoena at my front door and next thing I know I'm in the courtroom. And Basically I had walked up to the edge of that cliff and either jump off the cliff or tell the truth. And I did the right thing and told the truth. And that's when I realized sometimes until you talk something through from the beginning to end, you don't really understand it. And it was like I aged 10 years and became quite a bit wiser. Ever since that moment, I've just learned so much. Every, all those uh, things that your parents and your grandparents told you as a kid, like they all kind of make sense now or started to make sense af after I told the truth. Tyler, earlier we were talking about counting calories and you know the difference of drinking a glass of water and how that weight can add up when you're in a race like the Tour de France. And then... We're talking about this weight that that whole time where you were counting calories, you were really carrying around this huge weight. 
massive. I spent more time uh, thinking about getting caught than I did about winning, you know, during my professional career. That's just sad at the end of the day. That's what it got to. I didn't know going into it that that's where it was going to lead to. You know, my whole life I knew I was going to be an athlete or an adventurer. I knew that's what I wanted to do. And I did okay in school, but, you know, I did okay in school just so I could, you know, do athletics. Then all of a sudden it took that turn and went to that point. Like, can't always judge a sort of a book by its cover. Like, once you get in there, it's not always what you thought it was chalked up to be. And that was quite evident in cycling. You are listening to The Trail Less Traveled. Tonight, we are on the trail with former professional road bicycle racer, Tyler Hamilton, the author of the book, The Secret Race. Tyler, why did you do the performance-enhancing drugs if you knew that they were going to be testing you? Oh, yeah. Oh, that's a great question. Um, They did test us, but at the beginning, not very frequently. The team doctors basically gave you cheat sheets. They knew what product, how long it would basically be in your system for. So when it was in your system, you were considered like glowing, quote-unquote glowing. You never wanted to be at a race when you were glowing. So you prepared at home. They usually would give you a little like doping calendar to follow along with. And if you'd follow their rules or their cheat sheets, these tests were pretty easy to beat. And then over time, the testing got better and more frequently and even started out of competition testing where you had to fill your whereabouts, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. But still there are ways around that too. So the testing was always changing and the ways to basically cheat or take these drugs were always changing. So the, the amounts were constantly changing that you took of, you know, product X or product Y. And, you know, the blood doping was your own blood. It was your own blood. To this day, they still don't have the test for that. I don't know what it's like in today's day and age in cycling. I think it's a lot better than back in the dark days of cycling when I was racing. But back then, it was pretty easy. You know, at least today, there's a lot of people talking about it, and, like, we've learned a lot of lessons. I think today's riders have learned a lot of lessons from the past riders, Mm -hmm. you know, what to do and what not to do. You know, back then, it was – you never heard about it, you know. You only heard a few whispers about it, like, you know, before I went to Europe to race in the big leagues – you know, you heard whispers about, oh, you know, do you think they're doping? I don't know. But nobody talked about it. Nobody wanted to talk about it. And a few positive tests that they had back then, like, you know, before I started racing, was quickly got brushed under the rug. And the governing body of the sport had to part to do with, the, with this problem. Mm-hmm. You know, they brushed things under the rug. They knew what was going on, and they looked the opposite direction. How did it make you feel after you did it? Yeah. How did it That's a great question. make you feel? Well, psychologically, you knew you were cheating. Eventually, you started you, – at least you gave yourself like, okay, everybody's doing it, so this is what I have to do to compete and just push it in the back of your mind. Don't think about it. Once in a while, you'd wake up in the middle of the night and you know, have these committee meetings and those weren't a whole lot of fun. But most of the time, you just buried it. In terms of physically, you felt none of this stuff like you take something and the next day you'd be a whole different bike rider. But over time, it helped. It helped, you know. If your hematocrit was, you know, naturally like 42 or something, you know, and you had one up to 48 or something, yeah, that hill that you climb every day when you leave your house, yeah, you could feel the difference. You could feel the difference. That difference started to become addicting, you know, when you feel so good, when you're floating up these climbs, 
And when you feel like there's no chain in your bike and you're just, your legs are spinning and you're, you're on top of the world, it's, it's an addicting feeling. And it's the snowball effect. You know, that's just training. And then all of a sudden you start winning races, big races. Before you know it, you're caught up in a circle that you never imagined yourself being in. And once you're in there, it's hard, it was hard to get out. I mean, in my opinion back then, I mean, I could have gotten out. But I felt, felt like I had so much pressure to keep going. And maybe a lot of it was self-inflicted pressure. But, I mean, there was a lot of pressure from, from your sponsors, from the team to keep going. You talked about a sadness that yeah. you were carrying around this weight and that you were just basically sad. Yeah. I'd like to ask you for some advice for someone listening who also finds themselves sad. Maybe it has nothing to do with performance-enhancing drugs. Maybe it's what some people call depression. Yeah, yeah. How, did, how would you recommend for them to find the truth and to see happiness again like yeah. you did? I, I've su- I suffer with depression as well. Number one is to talk to, and to talk to somebody. It doesn't really matter who. Get out some of your feelings. I think therapists are great and very underrated. But maybe you're not ready for that yet. Maybe it's just a close friend or you feel like you can talk to. Maybe it's a parent. For me, yoga's helped me a lot. I was on antidepressants for 12 years, and I finally felt like I had the strength to, to stop. And I think a lot had to do with yoga. It's not just physical. It's, it's very mental, and it's helped me so much. Just getting outside. Get, you know, sometimes, like, just going out on a walk can change your whole day just your, or your outlook on life that, that, that minute, that second. Just changing it up a little bit. Breathing. Depression is it's a it's a disease. People have it, and it's not. For a long time, I I didn't want to tell anybody about it because I thought that they'd think I was weak. Or when I was diagnosed with it, I was sort of at the top of my career, and I didn't want my teammates who were going to be helping me, working for me in these big races. I didn't want them to think of think of me as being weak. I wish that weren't the case back then, but that's the way I felt. Just be open and honest. So many people suffer suffer with it. and We all could do ourselves a lot of good by just speaking more openly just about everything in life. And I think whether it's a friend, a therapist, a parent, or just a you know, random stranger, it's, it's good to talk. It's good to get some off your chest. So maybe it's into an empty room. Maybe it's when you're in the shower. Just say it. Say it out loud. And then you, Once you hear it, it's not as bad as what you thought. It's serious. Go talk to a doctor about it, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that. A lot of people suffer with depression. I don't know where I'd be without medication. It's so good for me and helped me get through so many tough periods in my life. If you're on medication, that's quite okay, you know. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Maybe I'll go back on it, but I thought I'd be on it for the rest of my life. But due to other things in my life, you know, maybe telling the truth and just turning a page in my life, it, I'm giving it a go without it. But, but also you have to be very aware of yourself and aware of, just taking care of your body, eating well, resting well. You know, your body's your temple. You are listening to The Trail Less Traveled. Tonight, we are on the trail with former professional road bicycle racer, Tyler Hamilton. And Tyler, I'd like to play a song. Let's play a song that pumps you up. Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros, Man on Fire. It just pumps me up. I love listening to it. It puts me in a good mood. I don't really, I'm not a dancer really, but it makes me want to dance. And that's awesome. And it puts a smile on my face every time I listen to it.
Back to Mandela and the trail less traveled. Tonight, we are on the trail with former professional road bicycle racer, Tyler Hamilton. Well, thank you so much, Tyler, for being on the trail less traveled today and for listening. Yeah, I'm a big fan of your show. Thanks for having me on. This is really cool. Thank you. I'm so glad that you found Missoula, Montana. Oh, I do too, man. I count my blessings every day. I'd like to end the show with three outdoor adventure tips. Oh, wow. The first one would be always be prepared with the right clothing. As a cyclist starting out in Boulder, Colorado, we were right at the base hills of the Rocky Mountains. So it could be July and it's 90 degrees, 95 degrees in Boulder. And head up into the mountains and you know you, a storm comes through and you get hailed on. It can be freezing cold. Always, always bring extra clothing with you, especially if you're changing elevation. Uh, number two, work hard and never give up. I kind of learned that from my parents growing up. My dad would always tell me when I was a kid that it's not the size of the dog in the fight. It's the size of the fight in the dog. So I took that to heart. And yeah, you can accomplish a lot by not giving up. I don't think I was the strongest or the most naturally gifted athlete out there, but I, I do know that I never gave up and I, I worked my tail off and Sometimes just when you think like it's not going to happen, if you, if you don't give up, good things can happen. And I had a lot of success in my life. When I just didn't give up, I kept fighting and then, you know, doors opened, I guess. And the last one, just be truthful to yourself. That can come in all different avenues in your life. But, you know, if you're out training, you know, you might want to be truthful to yourself if, if when you're thinking about doing that extra loop up in the mountains and push yourself hard, but be honest with yourself. Maybe it's not the right time or place and the truth will set you free that's for sure hey thanks for having me this has been great thank you so much what song would you like to end the show with the last song i'd like to play is sung by crosby stills and nash the title is southern cross fantastic song it kind of had me dreaming as a kid when i listened to that song and dreaming of sailing in the on the southern oceans Namaste, Missoula. Mandela here. You have been listening to The Trail Less Traveled, the community's source for adventure information and inspiration. I would like to thank my guest for this week, Tyler Hamilton, former professional road bicycle racer and author of the book, The Secret Race. Tyler gives talks around the nation and now calls Missoula home. He enjoys yoga and adventuring around with his golden retriever. Find The Trail Less Traveled on Facebook to follow the show as it is recorded on location around the world. Or visit traillesstraveled.net. My name is Mandela, your host of The Trail Less Traveled. My goal for the show is to take you, the listener, back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Every week, I will be interviewing an adventurer about what they do, how they do it, and how you can start adventuring in a similar fashion. The Trail Less Traveled is recorded at the Missoula Broadcasting Company or on location around the world in order to find these adventurers and talk to them in their natural habitat. My adventure tip this week is to consider a hammock. Hammocks offer a unique option for solo campers and are versatile enough for a wide range of temperatures and conditions. Hammocks can also be effective in minimizing your footprint or where space is limited. Well, 
That's it for this week, my friends. But until next week's adventure, please get outside and shred the gnar. Because the thing about the gnar is, it simply doesn't shred itself. <laughs>